And good morning, Memphis. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the morning show. It is the 27th of February. It is a nice morning out there. Feels rather warm. A little eerie, if you're asking my opinion. Okay, so today is the last day of early voting, you guys. So, um, and also I needed to add this because... Let it be known that elections have consequences. Do we believe that at this point? Have we seen enough Memphis to know that it does matter who is sitting in these local positions? Well, it does. So um, the deadline to register to vote for the March 5th election is um, over. If you look at the early, um, well, the Super Tuesday is right around the corner. Um, That is going down on March the 5th. So Make sure you check your T's or cross your T's and dot your I's uh, because we want to make sure we get out and vote. By the way, Justin Pearson, he was at the precinct down by my apartment. I've run into him multiple times. We live in the same neighborhood. The church, uh, I forget the name of the church. Basically, the banners outside of this church that he pastors out, it looks like a pride parade. Um, He was out voting for Tammy Sawyer. So anybody that Justin Pearson is voting for, vote against that person. He also voted for Joe Biden. We have this audio. Take a listen. Since we're in the mood of voting and it's the voting season, take a listen and cut to. Hey, everybody. It's Tennessee State Rep Justin J. Pearson here. I'm getting ready to go early vote for General Sessions Court Clerk Tammy Sawyer, as well as for President Biden and Vice President Harris in our presidential primary here in Tennessee. Come on with me. One minute, 37 seconds later. How did it go? Hey there, it was fantastic. Was able to vote for President Biden and also for Tammy Sawyer to be our next General Sessions Court Clerk. I am really excited about this election. I hope everyone goes out and votes early before February 27th or on March 5th. After that, August 1st, we're going to have the federal primary. So Gloria Johnson is going to be on the ballot as we are. So please go out and vote, go out and vote, go out and vote. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Woohoo! So everybody he voted for, vote for the other side of the aisle, and I can tell you we'll be in better shape. Meanwhile, Memphis Mayor Paul Young met face-to-face with gang members across the city over the weekend. We're trying to figure out what gang members he met with. Was it Stones? Was it Four Corners? Was it the Hustlers? No, these are actual Memphis gangs. You've got the Young Mob, the Dixie Holmes Murder Gang, the Fan Mob, the Kingsgate Mafia. There are so many gangs here in the city of Memphis. And maybe, just maybe, if we sit down with them in North Memphis or South Memphis, we can find Kumbaya and we will find peace. And it starts with a ceasefire. (laughs) So no longer are we screaming for the ceasefire in Gaza. Actually, Memphis, Tennessee is much more deadly than Gaza. I can tell you that right now. So the ceasefire that these activists have been screaming and shutting down commerce over, it really needs to be right here in the Bluff City. So that is now the new chant of Memphis Mayor Paul Young, who was at the Rotary Club, which... Kind of kills me that this was the setting where he delivered these remarks on how we are going to reduce crime in Cut 18, please. And my ask for them in that conversation was, can we get a seven-day ceasefire? Just seven days where there's no shooting, no killing. And 
They said, yeah, we would be willing to do that. And they gave me a couple of caveats. The other thing they said was, well, you know, our young guys, they need money. They need money in their pockets. That's the way you can change it. Gang members said Young want good jobs and the upskilling needed to get them. Gang leaders also telling Mayor Young. We don't have programs at, at our community centers. We don't have things to do. So we go out, we steal cars, and we ride around with our friends. <laughs> I never would imagine that the mayor would be talking to us directly. If you come to our hood, if you come over there and ask them to put the guns down, they will do it because they never seen anybody like you in their community talking directly to them. Yeah, no crap. That's because we're all scared. I mean, genuinely, this guy, this mayor needs a security detail if he's hanging out with the hood and gang members in those parts of town. So a couple things that will cause a ceasefire. Two things, if you heard in that soundbite obtained by WMC. One, if we pay them more and give them more jobs because they are lacking for cash. You can clearly tell that, can't you? With the cars they're driving around and all of the Nike. What, Dylan, what kind of shoes are they wearing? I don't want to get in trouble for appropriating, but at Air Jordans. Yeah, Jordans. Jordans. Okay. So how much are Jordans? I will tell you, I can barely buy a pair of Vans. They're a couple hundred bucks. Okay. So yeah, they can run into the thousands. <laughs> So they're strapped for cash. Thank you for making that point. So if we give them jobs at Popeye's or we give them John's uh, jobs at, like a Long John Silver, do we have Long John Silvers? That is a crime if we do not. It's really good seafood. Dylan shaking his head now. Okay, that's a like shame. Captain D's. So the other way to get a ceasefire, a seven-day ceasefire, <laughs> is to build basketball courts and a community center. Well, this is this is great because what this tells me is that we are absolutely, absolutely 100% screwed because I can tell you right now, the four corner hustlers are not going to put their, down the guns. Now, as I said, this was at the Rotary Club and he addressed the community foundation of greater Memphis. So I looked at the video and it was all of these blue bloods and they were sitting back. They looked like they were horrified, but they were still clapping. They were like. And this all while J.P. Morgan Chase was donating $272,000 to a program, a nonprofit that will help unemployed young people find a successful career path. So this is our way out of our, our crime problem here in this city. Do you think that this ceasefire A will happen? And do you think if we just build more basketball courts for the gangs that we will see a reduction in crime? I will give the mayor some props this morning. We like to do that on the show. He is thinking outside the box. The box has been for far too long the same old, same old. Now, at least we are um, doing Omaha 360. That was another thing. We have that audio from yesterday. Um, so this is another solution that they are going to implement. This is Omaha, Nebraska, where they implemented this. I believe it was a 15-year-long program where at the height of their crime wave, get this, they had 47 murders, 47 homicides. 
So we're comparing oranges to apples, but it may work in the Bluff City. Take a listen to Mayor Paul Young. There's a small amount of people that is creating the bulk of the chaos in our community. Memphis Mayor Paul Young says his team is working on various strategies to get those people off the streets. What have you started to implement? Yeah, so behind the scenes, we've been having a lot of discussions with some of our national partners and internally around how we can be more aggressive with identifying those that are committing the crimes. Like stepping up investigative services. He says his team is also looking looking at what other cities have done, like Omaha, Nebraska, where the number of gunshot victims was cut in half in the past 15 years. Its Omaha 360 strategy gets representatives from every part of the community, including the school system, churches, housing, businesses, police, politicians. Hundreds show up to weekly meetings where they go over recent data and mobilize resources to tackle underlying issues. We want to build a structure that allows for us to seamlessly communicate Share data. He says they're now working on a similar system, while also adding a new office focused on violence intervention and ways to invest more in our youth. What we have to do as a community is introduce other options to them. We want to open up our community centers and engage them. Oh, no. The community centers. Not again. Let's go to our phone lines. I believe we're getting a call from Todd from the Crips is what I'm being told by our call screener this morning. A gang member, Todd, are you there? Are you on the morning show? Can I hear you? Yo, 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 oh. yo, bro. <laughs> Where? Where? So, Todd, Todd, what gang member? What member are you part of? What gang in the in the city of Memphis? I'm from the Dixie Home Lilywhite. Okay. Well, let me ask you. You're pulling up to the table. You're meeting with the mayor. What is it going to take for you to set down your guns, not for eternity, but for seven days and stop shooting granny in the parking lot over at the Kroger on Kirby? Yo, 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 yo. No, uh, I, I love Mayor Brother Man. Mayor Brother Man. He talks to the gang members. <laughs> and I will say this. Um, I work down at the Popeyes now. I laid oh. down my gun. And I'm working at the Popeyes because of Mayor Brother Man. That's beautiful. That's and I beautiful. Say, I want to say that um, I would love to stay and talk, but i got to get down to the community center. i got to take a Zumba class. And uh, after Zumba, I'm doing a little macrame. <laughs> and then I'm back off to Popeyes, working the drive-thru. All right. No, j- just as long as you're not robbing the Popeyes. That's the agreement. You're working, right? You're not driving through the drive-thru Sticking a gun in the Popeye employee's face and stealing their cash register. Understand? That's part of the agreement, Todd. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. All right, we're done with Todd from the script. We're done with Todd from the Crips. I guess we open up our phone lines to other gang members in the city of Memphis. I I like this idea because it's a fluid conversation. This is how we stop crime. Oh, boy. Dylan, we're going to be pulled off air. Well, actually, I believe that was the station owner, so I think we're going to be fine. Along with Omaha 360, along with bringing in the gang members with this ceasefire, you should also know that there is a new operation that you should be well aware of. It is called Operation Code Zero. This is another effort by Mayor Paul Young. And actually, out of all of these suggestions and ideas and thinking outside of the box, this one will be the most effective. Take a listen to this. In cut number, we have this in 45. In 12, please. 
impact. To try to get the numbers to trend in the right direction on all of the crime statistics. Certainly the homicide rate is far higher than anyone would like. Stolen data to figure out where are the geographies where we're seeing the most activity uh, relative to car break-ins and things of that nature. And they wanted to uh, flood those areas with a presence. Our community is going to work very hard to ensure that those that are breaking the laws um, are taken off the streets. We are following up as a community uh, to look at how we can do things around cleaning up those areas. So it's not just about the enforcement, but overall, how can we make these areas of our city better and stronger? So this is part of what he's calling a pandemic level response. Again, this is Operation Code Zero. And he says this represents their most serious call to action. Zero as in all hands on deck. And I will give them some props, but I'm shocked the Progressive City Council haven't deemed the mayor of Memphis a racist because it was a 12 hour operation. Here's what happened. 402 traffic stops, 35 arrests, 15 weapons confiscated, 14 warrants served, 278 citations issued. That is actually how you stop crime. You enforce the laws that we have on the books. You don't make agreements with gang members in the hood. I guess you could try. Well, Judge Joe Brown is going to be joining us in our number two, and he knows of what he speaks. So we'll ask him about this. But taking your calls this morning, 901-260-5926, 901-260-5926. We'll be back. And welcome back to the morning show. Maybe the most offensive morning show in the city of Memphis. And I I was texting station owner Todd Starnes and I said, I'm totally canceled. I'm absolutely canceled. But you know what? He is my boss and we are independently owned. Unlike a lot of the other conglomerates that have these these massive um, machines. Basically, if you look at the radio market and this includes TV as well. They are run out of the state in massive headquarters in big liberal cities. And all of these quote unquote local hosts have to take their marching orders from the big guys over in corporate. And our corporation sits right below this studio in Todd's Todd's office. So that is the blessing of working for a locally owned local radio station. And again, we always have to point out our hosts are actually local. There are other radio show hosts in the market. They they are not even from the Mid-South. So it's very difficult for them to talk about local issues when they are not local. You would think if you were hiring a, a talk show host to talk about local issues, they would be in the market. They would be living on Beale Street. They would be living in Germantown, South Memphis, North Memphis. I don't care. Just be in the area. By the way, I got credentialed. This is good news. So Dylan Dandred walked into the studio and handed me my press credentials. This would have been very nice when I was on the I-40 bridge and I was flanked with pro-Hamas protesters to my right and to my left. And authorities did not know if I was joining them 
in the demonstrations because I was caught up in it on a run and I did not have my press credentials. This will get me access to those demonstrations and I will not be fearful that I am going to be hauled off to jail. This is true. These are very cool, by the way. Um, I feel like an official member. I feel like a staff member now. I'm yeah. not just the guy here now. I, I have I have my face on a card. <laughs> okay. On a lanyard. So we're going over to South Haven for a moment. Because the folks in South Haven, where Dylan lives, they find one dead body and the entire city is about ready to go onto, uh, under a lockdown. <laughs> The whole town is freaking out about some human remains found in Central Park. Now, Dylan brought this story to me yesterday, and he said, Ben, this is my park. This is where we go, and we walk around the lake. This would be your version of what, a Shelby Farms? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so do we know the human remains? Do we know if this is mal, uh, if this is malicious? So... Fox 13 caught up with some South Haven residents in the area, and I want you to take a listen to this because we're going to get to the bottom of this investigation. Take a listen to this in cut number. Uh, We have this in uh, looking down through my cut list. Boy, we have a long cut list. Um, We can go ahead. We've got fishermen, we've got bikers, we've got frisbee golfers, we've got uh, anyone who's looking to get back into shape. Um, So it's a pretty popular place. Word of mouth says that uh, we had some golfers going and somebody bent down to pick up their frisbee and discovered something else. It's unsettling to know that remains were here where I walk. (laughs) I'd rather deal with coyotes than... um, bodies (laughs) I can't wait to hear myself because that will tell me if this park is dangerous or you know if they were dumped here then you know it makes you feel somewhat better wait 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 I'm stuck on the fact that you guys have coyotes yeah we got coyotes up uh, down here so the neighbors that spoke to Fox they said they can remember the days when the only thing that people had to worry about in Central Park were coyotes but now they have to worry about dead people. I honestly hope this is a coyote. I don't know. <laughs> you know, instead of someone murdering someone or whatever it could be, uh, I don't know. But I'm not going to be walking there anymore. I can tell you that. I, I will tell you also, the folks over in South Haven, your sheriff, Thomas Tuggle, they don't mess. So if it is true that this big bad wolf destroyed and ate someone that wolf will be facing probably the death penalty. I hope so. They don't do the whole catch and release where they take the coyote to your version of 201 Poplar and then release them the next day on the wolf's, the coyote's recognizance. Yeah, I will say I do feel safe in South Haven. So like seeing the fact that this is like the one thing that people are freaking out about, that's a good sign because we don't typically have things like this happen or, you know, remains found. So when that does happen, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, it really does show the contrast. By the way, we are going to take a deep dive. And I'm I'm excited to do this because it's going to be a longer segment. We'll we'll jump into this in hour number 2 at the top of the hour. Section 8 housing and how it has destroyed Memphis suburbs. And you have to go back to the Obama years. We've had some of our listeners reach out about concerns where this was all intentional. With the Obama administration, you had, what was his name? Julio 
Julian, whatever his name is, Castro with the Obama administration. This is all back in 2015, 2016, as President Obama ended his second term in office. What was his goal? What was to disintegrate basically these outer suburbs? And it was an effort to punish suburbs for being too white and too wealthy. And are we seeing the results of Section 8 housing and tenants today in Memphis? I think it's very clear that we are. And we'll jump into that. Rush Limbaugh was listening to some archives yesterday. His take on it. And it was very interesting. We have the audio. I want you to stick around for that segment. We'll come back on the other side. We'll read through some of your comments. Let me let me squeeze in a couple. Diane writes this this morning. How are those people going to get hood jobs without education, skills, proper behavior, scruples, integrity, moral, and respect for others? That's a great point. Justin Johnson in Collierville writes this. This is the same song and same dance. We get what we voted for. We should never negotiate with terrorists. They are absolutely terrorists. They are domestic terrorists. Dean writes this. We need a program called Memphis Back to the 80s, where most people of all races got along and the police were able to do their job. Can't add much more to that because I certainly agree with Dean. Write down our telephone number. It is 901-260-5926. Number again, 901-260-5926. We'd love to hear your thoughts this morning. This is a place where you can vent, voice your frustrations. We'll take those and we'll share those to the quote-unquote city leaders because we know they listen every single morning. We'll be right back. Another day, another drama with Shelby County Clerk Wanda Hauber. I'm not even going to waste too much time on this story just because we don't have a ton of time to debrief on incompetence. What you need to know is this woman is incapable of doing her job. But is that a shock to anybody that lives in Shelby County? Hence why we're not going to just spend hours talking about it. So the Shelby County Commission wants answers from Shelby County Clerk Wanda Hauber about bad revenue figures from her office. Basically, she was unable to do math. And this is a problem, especially because they have to use the money that they've gotten from this wheel tax that would go to her office. I mean, we are paying for all of this, mind you. So she's bad at crunching numbers. She sends over the revenue report. And it's a disaster. It's, a, it's an absolute disaster. And according to the Daily Memphian, After she got in hot water, because we talked about this story on Friday, we had Shelby County Commissioner Charlie Caswell in studio, and he said, yes, the numbers, the math, it was all terrible. We cannot really do our budget properly with fraudulent reports. So she responded by sending a memo to commissioners on Monday. She was AWOL, by the way. And that was not going over with any of the commissioners. All of them, Brittany Thornton, for example, said, you must be here next Monday. So she's going to show up. She's going to be in the hot seat. So in this memo to commissioners sent on Monday, it expressed concerns about their system. All right, it's always pointing the finger. It's your problem. 
in the infrastructure of posting my financial reports, she claimed. She specifically complained about having to use Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> now, now listen, I will be the first to empathize with her. I had to do a quantitative methodology class in my poli-sci degree, and I had to use Excel. And that was the one class that I thought I was going to flunk, and I was not going to be able to graduate college because Excel is no joke. It's a very hard thing to do. But again, you're making a ton of money being the county clerk. You also have employees. Why don't they know how to use spreadsheets in Excel? So yesterday, we got this report by the clerk's trustee, in these inaccurate reports, again, this is not the clerk. This is just a trustee, a financial advisor. And here's what she had to say about the clerk's lack of due diligence. And also, we'll finish it off with Shelby County Commissioner Mick Wright. Take a listen to this in cut number 13. I consider us to be past the point of no return. We're seven months into the fiscal year, and we don't know what the clerk is bringing in, and that is the second highest revenue-producing office in the county. The funds are there. We just, at this point, cannot allocate them on the general ledger. The issues that come before me as concerns of constituents is 99.9% crime, and 0.01% county clerk's office. To the MPD. All right, so there you go. I mean, let's be very clear, though. This is nothing new. And this is because in the city of Memphis, we, we do not vote on competency. We vote on color. We vote on how many boxes a person checks. And I would say if she is ultimately recalled, because this is where this could end up, the citizens of Memphis 100% would vote for her again. So with that, I have nothing more to say. Incompetence. But it seems to be the theme of our public officials in the city of Memphis. I did want to share this with you. One other detail about our city's efforts to stop crime. So we talked about the mayor. He's called for a ceasefire with the gangbangers in town. The other thing is Omaha 360, which I just believe will not work also, we talked about Operation Code Orange. Is it, is it Operation Code Orange? I don't know. There's a lot of different operations at this point. Another thing that they are planning on doing is appointing a crime-fighting role. Now, according to WREG, Memphis Mayor Paul Young says this new crime-fighting role is in the works to help police curb crime in the city. He announced this earlier this week. They're planning to hire a public safety advisor. I would call this person, in my words, a crime czar. In a statement released by the mayor's office, the public safety advisor will make sure all of the groups working in the public safety space are oriented towards the same goals. This person will coordinate with Chief Davis and work directly with the mayor. Mayor Young says he's looking to fill this crime czar position within the next 60 days. Again, I see the issue here is if this crime czar is reporting to a mayor who believes that the best way to address crime is to build another basketball court. That is a problem. Well, maybe we reported to police chief C.J. Davis. Well, the woman is incompetent. So this does not give me too much confidence that we are going to 
again, find solutions in solving our crime problem. One person who is, though, is Senator Brent Taylor. And I was sent this by his staff. He was on the Senate floor yesterday, and his first portion of the DA Transparency Act passed through the Senate. This will need approval by the House. Here is Senator Brent Taylor on why this DA Transparency Act needed to happen yesterday in Cut 16. These groups are groups that look to end incarceration. They look to end cash bail. And they're doing this because they can't achieve those objectives legislatively. So what they do instead is they use lawsuits, Mr. Speaker, threats of lawsuits. They use compliant, acquiescent district attorneys. Mr. Chairman, they can't achieve these objectives legislatively because if they did, you know, the public gets to make the decision if we've been influenced uh, because we have to disclose who our donors are to our campaigns. Lobbyists have to disclose who they lobby for. But these outside groups who are not based in Tennessee are able to come in here and do this uh, restorative justice scheme and the public has no idea. Tennesseans have no idea who is paying for this fundamental change in our justice system. And that is the purpose of this bill, Mr. Speaker, so that Tennesseans can know who is financing the change to our justice system. So following that exchange, there was an opportunity for other legislators to ask questions about it. And of course, the Memphis delegation, starting with Ramash Akbari, she freaked out. She grabbed her pearls. She started screaming. She's, are you singling out a certain group? And again, the, Brent Taylor has been pretty clear who he's talking about whether it be Just City. But it's not just Just City. One of these outside groups that are in the ear of our district attorney and our court system. We could go through the list. And so what he does is he brings his fact sheet. And he said this to upset Democrats on the Senate floor. Take a listen. Here's a couple examples he gives. 15. Uh, for example, there is uh, the Vera Institute of Justice. Uh, who, by the way, provides the bail calculator, the ability to pay, uh, pay bail calculator, uh, and they have on their website that this tool will help ensure that bail is less burdensome and punitive on the path to eliminating bail entirely. They go on to say, Mr. Speaker, that as we fight for the end of money bail entirely, we hope that the ATP, the ability to pay calculator, and the lessons learned from our bail assessment pilot help mitigate the harms of money bail. So if Just City and Ver Institute of Justice and Justice Innovation Lab and any other group that comes in here that don't share Tennessee values and trying to undercut our justice system, the public has a right to know who's financing that. Mm-hmm. So thank God we're still in a super majority. We're in a super majority of Republicans in the state house because without the backing of the GOP, Memphis, there's no end in sight with how crime will go in our city and how bad it could get before it gets better. So wanted to just give you an update on what's happening happening on the legislative side in the Senate and in the House. By the way, also, we've got the massive House proposal for the school voucher program. This is very confusing, and I'm working to get the House Speaker on. So there's three different school voucher programs and proposals. There's one in the Senate. 
There was one presented and proposed by Governor Bill Lee. And then Tennessee House Speaker Cameron Sexton and the House Republicans released theirs. There are similarities between the three different proposals, but there are differences. And I have audio. We'll jump into the details, but we are going to take a break because we have a great guest on the other side that we're going to jump right into. But uh, 901-260-5926 is our telephone number. 901-260-5926. Go grab some coffee. We'll come back. It's going to be a fun morning show. We have a lot more coming up on Wake Up Memphis. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the morning show. Glad to have you guys joining us in hour number one. We are huge fans of Congressman Mark Green. He's a friend of Todd's. He is a friend of the morning show. And we told you last week that he announced that he is going to be resigning or he is not going to be seeking re-election in his district. But new reporting suggests that he could be considering running for re-election. We'll ask our next guest, the host of the Mill Creek View podcast, Steve Abramowitz, which joins us in uh, on our phone lines and from Nashville. Steve, thanks for joining the program. How are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I cannot complain. So you watch this. You're from that area. You got to go back. So Green or Mark Green, Congressman Mark Green, had announced earlier that the U.S. government was broken. And I'll read his statement that he released when he announced this. Our country and our Congress is broken beyond most means of repair. I've come to realize our fight is not here within Washington. Our fight is is with Washington. I'll get your response to that and the idea that he could be running again. Well, I think he's right. Number one, I was actually very shocked and disappointed to hear that he was going to not go back for round two. Um, but, you know, he there was talk of him, you know, running for governor and maybe this bill they can't pass that says he can't hold two seats made him think twice about, you know, giving it up to run just in case he loses. Um, but that's quite a ways away from now anyway, the governor's race in Tennessee versus his congressional seat. But, you know, he made a promise to impeach Mayorkas for dereliction of duty and lying that our border was closed while 50 million have crossed over. He did get it done. He made a promise and he got it done. The Senate won't do anything about it, unfortunately, even though Marsha Blackburn harps on it on Twitter every day. Um, (laughs) You know, she liked it done, but, you know, Chuck Schumer won't hold a vote, I'm sure. So as a congressman, you know, one of 300 and whatever it is, 50, he went in there, said, I'm going to impeach this guy. He did it. But, you know, a Band-Aid on, on the dam, so we'll see. There was reporting where Senator Marsha Blackburn was in the ear of the congressman encouraging him not to stay out of office, but to jump back in. And again, that's what sources confirmed to Fox 17 and Nashville Monday that he, in fact, may run again. Speaking of immigration, and you're in Nashville, you saw the quote-unquote neo-Nazi protests that, of course, the Tennessee Three linked immediately to GOP 
Republicans in our state. Then you have Justin Jones, who is over in your neck of the woods. We've got Justin Pearson's. Oh, boy. So here he is on the House floor yesterday. And I want you to take a uh, uh, listen to this because it's all over immigration. And now the thinking for these radicals is if you are foreclosing our southern border, well, that makes you a Nazi. Take a listen and cut 19. One day people will look on what we're voting on here, everything we voted on, and say we were on the wrong side of history as a body. That this bill is about deflection and deception and distraction. This bill is not about keeping anyone safe. This bill is about beating up on a vulnerable people who are migrating, who are refugees, who are seeking asylum, which is a human right. And so I asked my colleagues, Representative McCalman, think about your ancestors. Where are they from? How did they get to Tennessee? And imagine if they were met with the same vitriol that you're putting in this resolution. Imagine if they were called illegal immigrants when they were really children of God. No one is illegal on stolen land. That wall you want to build is crossing indigenous land. That wall, those arbitrary borders you want to build is crossing indigenous land. Some of the folks coming across the border are indigenous folks just trying to reunite with their relatives and family. And so once again, we stand on this floor offering no solutions, offering nothing of substance, but just offering fear-mongering and hate. And that poison has poisoned the body of our politic. That poison, that red meat of racism that we're feeding these white supremacist groups. It'll be no wonder when the next neo-Nazi march will come. Some may argue that this is a neo-Nazi rally happening every time we convene in this body. But what we have to call attention to... And then you hear the House Speaker jump in there because you have Justin Jones calling his colleagues white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Steve? Well, <laughs> he didn't know how to do the Pledge of Allegiance, and he obviously never read a history book to know that the Nazis were actually socialists, which are the people writing his scripts, like Al Sharpton and Joy Reid. So I don't exactly know what he's talking about, other than to say he's very offensive, and he likes to wear skinny jeans. So what I would say about Justin Jones is that he is on very thin ice because he already lost his committees, they just passed a rule that says that if you were expelled, you are not allowed to come back from your city. So he's basically destroying the opportunity to be an agitator because he's agitating the Speaker of the House who doesn't tolerate this stuff. So, you know, six months from now, he may not even be uh, there. But there is some very interesting relationships between that rally of what I would consider uh, feds dressed in red going down Broadway uh, as neo-Nazis and him. Because ironically, the two people who discovered this march when no one else was paying any attention to it was him and the other Justin. And by the way, you called him the Tennessee Three. On my show, that is a uh, taboo statement. The Tennessee Three was um, Johnny Cash's backup band. These are the three J's, Justin, Justin, and Johnson, Gloria Johnson, who somehow dodged the expulsion because i don't know maybe she's a white woman and there's some kind of privilege there not exactly sure no because but, of john gillespie uh, our republican here but continue your train of thought I'll four days four days okay <laughs> um yeah so bottom line is i think justin jones is reading from the Solinsky playbook and the good news is he didn't have a bullhorn this time because that's against the rules but he's just not winning friends over or influencing people because he's offensive. And uh, Mark Zachary stood up and said, hey, Rule 19, you're out. 
can't talk anymore and speaker Sexton said, oh, good point. You're out. You can't speak anymore. So stop insulting our people. And how, when you're in the Congress or an assembly, aren't you supposed to reach across and deal with people and try to get things done? When you're in the ultra super major- minority in mm-hmm. Tennessee, 24 to 75, that kind of language is not going to make you friends who are going to say, yeah, sure, let's work on uh, solving crime problems in Memphis or water or uh, taxation or school vouchers. Let's work together. No, not going to happen. He needs to shape up and act like an adult and stop trying to uh, filibuster with uh, Malcolm X speeches written by Jesse Jackson. Yeah, wow. Well said. It's exactly right. And I've said this on the program. You know, all of this is to make sure they make appearances on MSNBC's Joy Reid show. There's no question because they get booked every time they do these shenanigans. And it is incumbent on Republicans to not take the bait. Like, we cannot play their games because this is how they fundraise. And I've got to give the, what do you call it, the three J's a little bit of credit because when they are in a super minority, they don't have a ton of power. But it's this stuff and these national eyeballs that they get when they pull these shenanigans that helps them fundraise and helps launch them into a national spotlight. Um, before we let you go, I want to talk about the podcast. You were with my boss, by the way, and... And some of the great team at KWIM at NRB. So for those just hearing the podcast for the first time, what do you seek to do on the Mill Creek View podcast, Steve? Yeah, I met your boss, Todd Starn, and a lovely Grace. And Alan Pillow was there. We were at Opryland for NRB. That was great. I'm sure you or he has described what NRB is on your show. But it's uh, Christian broadcasters across the country. It's great. And so the show is basically No Creek View, which is Nolansville, um, Tennessee, stories. So I've had uh, today, for example, I have the second of two sheriffs running for uh, Williamson County Sheriff um, to replace the 40-year veteran uh, Dusty Rhodes, the legendary Dusty Rhodes who's been here since uh, I was a baby. So I look forward to that. That's what the stories are. It's people who have something important to say to tell everybody from outside the state how wonderful Tennessee is. Sometimes, you know, the blemishes, not how great it is, but the stories so that if people are like me and they're looking for another place to live and they want to know what they're getting into, if they want to choose Tennessee over Texas or Florida or any other state that, like I came from a blue state that's completely lost to the, to the CCP, um, this is what they'll come into. So I've had Marsha Blackburn on, I've had your... Senator Taylor, who's amazing. Brent Taylor, I think, is the one and only guy trying to clean up Memphis, from what I can tell, uh, from the Senate, which is not an easy place to do it from, but got to start somewhere. You're getting Um, those conversations. Hey, we are going to be cut off by the computer. Steve, thank you for joining us. You can find out more information at Mill Creek View. That on X. We'll be right back. And welcome back to our number two of the morning show. Coming up this hour, Judge Joe Brown is going to be jumping on. We'll keep him for two segments because we're going to tackle a couple different issues. Of course, he's very familiar with the corruption problem in the city of Memphis. And can we really reach across the quote unquote aisle to gang bangers to solve our crime problem? You know, Judge has been an advocate of that. And when he was running for mayor, he said, my plan would include that. But will Mayor Paul Young be able to get the job done? Again, the news coming out yesterday that Mayor Paul Young is calling for a seven, seven day ceasefire. 
and asking all of the gangs in the Bluff City to join him in that. The stipulation by said thugs were that they had more access to community centers. And I will leave it at that. I want to talk about Section 8 housing for a second. And I know some people are, why is this relevant? Like this used to be a topic back in 2015, 2016. I think it is playing out in Memphis. And we had a listener send in this long report, but it got a lot of play on our Stop Memphis Crime page, and I wanted to jump into the story a little bit and talk about why we are in this state that we are where we're seeing inner city crime trickle into to the suburbs. So I'll read a little bit about one of our K or of what one of our KWM listeners, excuse me, sent over to us, and then we'll jump into why I think this is happening. She writes, "I don't think that many people are aware of the underlying underlying causes that has ignited the current citywide crime crisis." which is the widespread closure of the projects that would be traditional subsidized housing, Section 8 housing, over the span of the last four to five years around the beginning of the pandemic and incrementally saturated clusters of the Section 8 recipients through the community that had once originally been relatively safe, quiet, civilized, and crime-free, such as most of Cordova, Germantown, Collierville, Bartlett goes on to list other areas, including South Haven, Olive Branch, and some Mississippi territories. She goes on to say, we can thank the welfare system for this as they remain silent concerning this crime pandemic that they have had a significant hand in producing. I don't know who ideas this was or why, but it's not a good idea, in my opinion, to blend working class people with government sponsored hood rats who typically don't have any intentions of working, contributing to the tax base, advancing themselves through various educational programs and progressing beyond the comfortability and complacent accommodations that the welfare system provides for that goes on to say that she's noticed an uptick in evil says here, quote, uptick in violent incidents of criminal acts we've routinely been seeing and hearing about all over the city, and now there's not as many safe pockets of the city as there once has been. I could feel the evil energies when I'm driving through the streets. I could feel the evil energies when I'm waiting at the stoplight to turn green. Goes on to say I don't feel safe to go to the library. I don't feel safe when I go to Walmart. Day by day, I find myself becoming more comfortable with withdrawing myself from the culture of this city and being a sort of a homebody and hermit because the culture of this city is one that I no longer recognize, respect, relate to, or associate with and goes on to talk about many issues relating to black culture. She ends with this, many of the thugs who would typically reside in the projects on the rough side of Memphis, south, north, and west Memphis, are now afforded the luxury of living in gated neighborhoods. And in the suburbs, luxury apartments on the east side of the city and in modernized zero-lot houses. And many of these people who lived many years in the projects on the bad sides of the city have brought their project mentalities, project behaviors, project family members and friends with them. And because they haven't had to contribute to the tax base, they don't value or respect nicer communities. So our listener asked the question 
I don't know whose idea this was. Well, I think we have some answers. If you go back to the Obama administration and the rollout of Section 8 housing, it was designed to punish suburbs, all in the name of racial equity. The suburbs committed the crime of being too wealthy and of being too white. And it was all part of a grand scheme, as you'll hear from Rush Limbaugh in a moment. We pulled the archives to forcibly desecrate inner cities and integrate them into outer suburbs. Again, the beautiful packaging of this was to diversify. Right? This was DEI before we knew what DEI was. Again, this was a very nefarious scheme by the Obama administration. You had his housing secretary, Julian Castro, in 2016, threatened to sue suburban landlords. And this happened right here in the Mid-South for discrimination if they refused to open up their doors and allow Section 8 tenants with criminal records to live amongst you guys. In 2015, he implemented a powerful regulation called the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Act that would pressure all suburban counties taking federal grant money to change local zoning laws to build more low-income housing. And he said this. I don't have the audio. I look for it. Believe me, last night. This was his quote. We want to use our housing choice vouchers to ensure that we don't have a concentration of poverty and the aggregation of racial minorities in one part of town, that poor part of town, adding that he's trying to undo the, quote, result of discriminatory policies and the practices in the past and sometimes even now. So again, this was all about righting the wrong of slavery. And to do that, we must punish the white wealthy suburbs. So they roll out the voucher program. It would allow urban families to move into areas that have better access to jobs. And the report and why they were able to convince a lot of Americans is that if you offer more money to move these people to more expensive neighborhoods, you will improve their situation. You will pull them out of crime, lack of poverty and education. But if you look back at the records, their own studies showed that that theory did not match reality. If you go way back in time before I was even, uh, well, I would have been alive. He was the first president that I remember, but barely. That was President Bill Clinton. My, my mom had a picture of him up on the wall. She, mu- she made me look at it and say, this is who we will not be. I thought he was the demon. I really did. Um, and now I look at Bill Clinton and I'm like, I miss Bill Clinton. Not really, but kind of Bill Clinton started a similar program in 1994. It was called the moving to opportunity initiative, which moved thousands of mostly African American families from government projects to higher quality homes in safer, less racially segregated neighborhoods in several counties across the country. It's worth pointing out that that 15 year experiment, it bombed. If you look at what happened to Dallas, where they implemented this, it was met with disastrous results. And there were other cities where, again, the shift in policy led to an increase in crime, a decrease in property values. Now, Rush Limbaugh, may he rest in peace, 
you miss guys like Rush, which makes me very thankful for guys like Todd Starnes because Todd has been talking about the result of Section 8 housing and how it's destroyed a lot of the suburbs here in the Mid-South. Had this to say on his show back in the day in Cut 14. Obama's last act is to force suburbs to be less white and less wealthy. Yeah, it's by design and on some purpose. And they tried it in Dallas, and the crime rate skyrocketed with the introduction of, of, of people with no jobs. And it was judged to be a success. So now they're doing it in Westchester County, which has long been a test market. It's, it's not new. It's just being written about here for the first time in the New York Post. Castro last month threatened to sue suburban landlords for discrimination if they refuse Section 8 tenants with criminal records. We told you about this last week. You have to rent to somebody. We're going to get rid of, in fact, the term criminal, and we're going to get rid of the term felon. This will facilitate them being hired by mandate or given affordable so-called places to live by mandate. And this is going to survive long after Obama's out of office, unless somebody does something about it. It's happening under the radar. Look, on a deeper scale, it's no different than you run a bakery and somebody walks in, I'm getting married, I'm gay, I want you to bake a cake, sorry, not our values, okay, fine, we're going to sue you and put you out of business. Uh, you're a photographer, same thing, we're having a gay wedding, why don't you take pictures, sorry, religious beliefs say, I can't do that, well, you're going to pay, we're going to sue you out of existence, same thing here. If you will not permit Section 8 tenants, felons and so forth, with criminal records to move into your neighborhood, we're going to sue you. What? This is... I hope he fails. I don't, this is the chip on his shoulder. Everything I've said here, America as the problem, America as flawed, morality flawed since the founding, payback time. Folks, here, when, when statists are in control, there's something that, it's a universal truth, undeniable truth. Statists, socialists, communists, what have you, when they are in control, one of the first orders of business is always to punish those who have done well without government. Mm, pretty provocative stuff. My boss writing this, President Obama began the process of moving Section 8 residents into the suburbs and asked the question, do you remember that? Diane writes this, the reason you stated here in referring to our listener that wrote in that post is the exact reason Diane and her husband moved out of Shelby County. Fear and suspicions. Fear of becoming a statistic. Now in just a few short years, we've noticed that Memphis-type element is on our streets, in our local restaurants, our stores, and in the outlying areas. Many more of you guys wrote in. Gina writes something very similar. She says these crime numbers were going up people filing for bankruptcy, all of this contributed to what they called white flight in the city of Memphis. The communities were being taken up in places like Cordova, then the schools, and it wasn't about education or politics, it was about righting the wrong of slavery. She says it started back in the 80s. Fast forward to now, we see the repercussions of this every single day, the blending of working class people and folks that do not want to work. And as Rush said, it was a scheme 
devised by President Obama, and we're seeing that, though he's not in office any anymore, any longer, play out in our city every single day. It's here. We'll be right back. Nearly half of Democrats want to boot Biden off the ticket with Michelle Obama leading his favorites as a replacement. This according to some recent polling by Rasmussen. Welcome back to the morning show. About 48 percent of Democratic voters polled say they approve of the party finding another candidate to replace Joe Biden before the election in November Only 33% of Democrats believe a ballot shakeup is likely to happen. It seems like that is a little bit too late. But if I look at who they want to replace President Obama or President, see, I'm telling you, it's not just the word gaffe. I said this on the show on Friday. I meant to say President Biden and I said President Obama because I don't think President Biden is calling the shots. It also is the same thing that Trump is getting in trouble for. He keeps on saying President Obama's third term and the left is screaming about President Trump's cognitive. No, it's not his cognitive decline at all. It's the fact that there is someone calling the shots and it's definitely not Joe Biden. Joe Biden is incompetent in every single way there is. So you've got at the very tip top, Michelle Obama. They want to see her run. I don't want to see her run because I would fear she would win. Um, behind her leading at 60%, led then by Vice President Kamala Harris, and number two, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, God help us. This is the B team, by the way. California Governor Gavin Newsom, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmire, and then there were a couple other names. So we'll be following that. It will be here before you know it. I'm praying that it gets here soon, and Americans make the right call and decision. I have a million things that plague my mind. The last thing I expected to be concerned and staying up at night over was my produce. Lettuce, tomatoes. I walk in there. I grab the juiciest uh, uh, zucchini, cucumber. I don't think about the fact that there could be a vaccination. The mRNA vaccine inside Bob the Tomato. Do you? Because now I have to worry about that. Guys, I have already sworn off any anxiety medication because I'm not that anxious of a person. But I am a news and we spend a lot of time talking about scary stories. Tennessee State Lawmaker Representative Scott Sapicki said during a House Health Committee yesterday that the public should be wary about vaccines being intentionally placed into their tomatoes and lettuce. And he cites statistics where this is happening in other states like California, where at the University of California, they have perfected vaccinating lettuce. (laughs) So the top Democrat chairman, John Ray Clements, pushed Sapicki on this. And we have a little bit of this exchange on the back and forth of whether you have a tomato that has been vaxxed. Or if you're lettuce as an anti-vaxxer, take a listen to this in cut number seven. Can you give me an example of a food that's a vaccine? You recognize? Yes, 
University of California, Riverside has already perfected the ability to put human vaccines into our lettuce right now. Also, toma also tomatoes has the ability to do that also for UC Berkeley. And then uh, our big tobacco, RJ Reynolds and stuff has perfected the ability to put a human vaccine in, into tobacco products. Chairman Clements. And is that even legal to do in the state of Tennessee to sell those with a vaccine in them? You recognize? Uh, well, I, I'm not arguing that point. What I'm saying is there is no law deeming those that when you go into a grocery store, you should know as a consumer, this head of lettuce is a head of lettuce. The head of lettuce right next to it could contain a vaccine in it. All we're saying is if it does have the vaccine in it, make sure it's listed as a pharmaceutical so people can get the proper dosage. Thank you. This is more of a consumer protection bill right here is to make sure that if you're going in to buy tomatoes and there's a polio vaccine in there. What? That you are aware of what you're buying has a polio vaccine. The problem you have is if it's not treated as a pharmaceutical, <clears throat> being the size and difference between you and me, how many tomatoes do I have to eat to get the proper dosage versus how many tomatoes that you have to eat? And if you eat too many, do you get a, a overdose? If you eat too less... Like we had in the cattle industry with aramycin, we weren't dosing our cattle properly and the horn flies were developing an immunity to it. If we don't have the proper dosage of a vaccine, it could lead to the efficacy of that drug not, not work anymore. <laughs> Dylan, help me out here. I mean, the last thing I ever thought would happen in 2024, year of our Lord, is that my tomato is going to have the polio vaccine in it. Yeah. Can we may have to protest. Can we put like at least a little sticker on the potato that I buy? That not only are you looking for the ones that are like organic, but the ones that say they have Moderna or another pharmaceutical. <laughs> are they really injecting drugs inside of things like tomatoes, eggplants, zucchinis? This Your is tomato can probably go to another country faster than you can with that vaccine. Right. Or your favorite concert or anywhere where you need the vaccine to get into. Yeah. Well, I am an anti-vaxxer on this. And so, therefore, my tomato has also got to be an anti-vax tomato. Yeah. Okay. So, just be consistent. So, according to the Daily Mail, women are loving men who are embracing the, quote, baby girl vibe and ditching toxic masculinity. You might ask, what is the baby girl vibe. Well, I didn't know until I was told. A new definition of the term baby girl has recently been adopted. And according to this piece, it is where a baby girl man comes across as a sweet, charming, a bit bashful, and seemingly in touch with their feminine side, ready to talk about their feelings or carry a purse to brunch at any point. <laughs> that last one. <laughs> That got me. This is the Webster definition of baby girl. Okay, good. Okay. So according to recent trends, women want men who are more like this instead of toxic macho masculinity. <sighs> really, though? About 31% of American men have said that they actively change their behavior to become more vulnerable. And open with people that they're dating. This according to Bumble's 2024 Dating Trends Report. So that's the question. Girls out there, do you want to date a baby girl man? 
I feel like some of those qualities are good to have as a man. You know, you can be Which vulnerable. Oh, carrying the purse to brunch? Not I mean, the purse. What does this mean? Just being vulnerable, you know, being sweet. Those are things that are okay. But, like, I don't know if I would call it baby girl. I mean, if that's what the trend is right now, then sure. But, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know. It seems to me that this 31% of American men that have actively changed their behavior are doing that to land date number two. Or land Probably. other things. You know, are they really... They're not being their true selves. Are they really just throwing off being a man and becoming a baby girl overnight? I don't think so. But if that's what it takes to get another date, maybe you do that. The question then becomes, do you want to date a female that requires you to subscribe to being a baby girl? Mm. I wouldn't. <laughs> no, and I know your fiance and she would not be married to you if you were a baby girl the next morning. <laughs> But I guess, again, it is okay to talk about your feelings, but I would, I don't know that you need to start walking around wearing her, her Versace purse. I don't need, is that a purse? Is that a brand? I don't know. Michael Kor. Anyways, is this true, ladies and gentlemen? Do girls want to date baby girls? We'll be right back. Don't go away. And welcome back to the morning show. So exciting programming note. Tomorrow at 8 o'clock, it is going to be a must-listen-to hour of radio because for the first time ever since they both left their TV jobs, Joey Solopec and Merle Purvis will be sitting down for one hour in a KWAM exclusive right here on the morning show. A lot of people are excited to see those two back on air together. They were a duo and they're great, great friends. So very excited to bring that to you tomorrow morning starting at 8 o'clock. But right now, I want to go to a very special guest of ours, TV judge, outspoken commentator, Judge Joe Brown. Judge, thank you for joining the morning show. Welcome back to Memphis. Good morning. Or actually, I haven't left. I've been here for the last 50 years. <laughs> Did a lot of flying out to the West Coast. But anyway. You are always I traveling. I, I will say that. You are always going and you have these engagements. You're a busy, busy guy. But I do appreciate you are still so tapped into local issues. And the biggest among those is crime. You made that the bedrock of your campaign. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get your reaction to our Mayor Paul Young and how he is addressing the out of control crime. And he says it's going to be by starting down and sitting down with gangbangers across the city. Take a listen in cut 18. And my ask for them in that conversation was, can we get a seven day ceasefire? Just seven days where there's no shooting, no killing. And they said, yeah, we would be willing to do that. And they gave me a couple of caveats. The other thing they said was, well, you know, our young guys, they need money. They need money in their pockets. That's the way you can change it. Gang members said young want good jobs and the upskilling needed to get them. Gang leaders also telling Mayor Young. We don't have programs at, at our community centers. We don't have things to do. So we go out, we steal cars, and we ride around with our friends. I never would imagine that the mayor would be talking to us directly. If you come to our hood, if you come over there and ask them to put the guns down, they will do it because they never seen anybody like you in their community talking directly to them. 
audio obtained by WMC. Judge, your response. Well, I was talking to them for the last two years, and instead of having a nice staged affair in an auditorium like supposed to be scheduled for today, you might try to deal with them privately on their turf. You do have to go down there and talk with them, and you can, but there is a reluctance on behalf of the people that run things in the city to do that. And what I got was also... If they want to talk to us with sincerity, then they need to stop doing what they're doing. Meaning the people that run Memphis. Mm. They see what's going on. So anyway, um, you also have to enlist them to a cause. Uh, Not just uh, bribe them not to commit crimes because that's not really what's going on. Somebody needs to take control of their own communities they do and be involved in the process of making it happen but it's a start i'm not optimistic but it's a start what what do they want right if they're pulling up to the table and at this table you have mayor paul young and now these gang members he says that they want more access to community centers and different jobs. Do you agree with that? What do these people want out of this ceasefire? They want power, and it's not what they want out of the ceasefire. The word I got was, we're tired of the killing anyway, but somebody has to take charge and lead this place. It's not what we have in Memphis right now. If you take the major cities in America in contrast to what you have in terms of administrations today with what you had 30 years ago, you'll see a profound difference. A mayor could walk out and he's got power and authority and say, follow me. Nowadays, you have people that nobody's going to follow if they get out there and try to do what they need to do. They don't know how to. So an administration sitting at a desk, having a a conference is not going to be what's required. You have to be able to deal with people one-on-one and you have to motivate them by giving them a cause and a purpose. I did that uh, 30-some years ago when I had a very successful program reducing recidivism in this town. And what you had to do is enlist them to making where they are better. Uh, you had to find out what was going on and what buttons needed to be pushed. It's not all about money. It's about feeling that you have to say about something you can do about your own circumstances, not just being helpless. And this thing that the mayor and the chief of police were talking about, they did an interview on Channel 5 a few weeks ago about Finding the criminal elements and paying them to not commit crime is the wrong kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. It's like you got a part in this, you're getting chumped off, you're being put to use because we need you to take yourself out and distract people from what's going on otherwise so they don't pay attention to contracts that shouldn't be let uh, dash under the table and things that are just not appropriate. We've got this problem down here with the clerk's office. They can see that. 
uh, who's it going to topple when it gets investigated? And I suspect that it's going to be some unobvious people. If I uh, hear what I hear, you know, through the drums and the back alleys. Now, see, that kind of thing is something that you can't really hide but so long. And when you've got a corrupt administration in these big cities where there's too much going on under the table, it's not going to translate into safety out in the streets. Hmm. So, yeah, and the well, police, and see, we have gangs, these gangs have infiltrated the police department, the sheriff's department, that's why we've got a lot of things going wrong down here in the detention facilities, because the gangs have infiltrated the things, so nobody knows how to get out in there and deal with that. You, you take a vacuum, and you put it out there, and it will fill, but oftentimes what it Fills with not what you want it to fill with. So somebody's got to go down there and get a clue. I wanted to ask you about what is going down at our criminal courts. I mean, you've been in the legal system for years, and that. All right, okay. What what is going on? Because that seems to be the crux of many of our issues. The cases are not being processed. What is going on? How do we solve it? Well. What I'm hearing from some of the criminal court judges is that the prosecutorial staff just isn't experienced. They are not experts. They're not journeymen uh, handling trial matters like they ought to. They're still learning because of the turnover in the staff. Uh, That was inevitable, but instead of getting people who are experts in criminal law, you have people who or at the top of the heap, they may have had five, six, seven trials. The previous uh, district attorney we had down here had this idea of breaking in some people and giving them trial experience before they got ready for it. So we've got about five years' worth of a mess going on down in criminal court where everything's backed up nobody knows how to do it. So the judges are frustrated because everything is sort of Dangling. Um, people don't know how to they don't know how to board our juries they don't know the process of motions. they're unfamiliar with what's going on and they're learning and criminal justice is falling behind and people are not getting processed through the system and the citizens are not getting safety so that's one of the things that's going wrong down there We've got too many people that don't know what they're doing, where you're supposed to be an experienced attorney, and you're going in and out of the system. You got fancy advertising, and you inquire, how many cases have you tried in front of a jury? Mm -hmm. Too many of these lawyers, the answer is none. And then we've got a situation now where a lot of the prosecutorial staff you ask them, how many jury trials have you had of major felonies? Answer two. Answer three. Um, it just doesn't when you have that. Wow. All right. So we're going to go to break. You're going to stick around for one more segment segment because I sure. wanted to get um, your reaction to what's going down in Fulton County, Georgia. Uh, that is a nightmare. And talk about corruption. Uh, real quick, let's put Judge on hold. Go to Samantha real quick because she wanted to respond to our conversation, what the mayor is also saying and how he's going to address crime. Samantha, what's on your mind? Hi. 
Um, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm in an alternate universe. Something, I, maybe I'm just slow or I just don't understand, you know, how things work. But how does a mayor meet with gang leaders, criminals, murderers, and negotiate with them? Like, how can someone explain that to me? Like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. It's a it's a really interesting point, and I thought the same thing, Samantha, um, this morning. If we know that they are known gang members and they are very violent, violent people, I would have showed up as the mayor and I would have arrested all of them, but I'm not the expert, so what we'll do, we'll ask Judge about that on the other side and get you somewhat of an answer, but it's a very provocative question, one of which I had as I started the show. Thanks for calling in. You can also have your say on the morning show like Samantha did, 901-260-5926, 901-260-5926. We'll be right back with Judge Show Brown. Don't go away. And let's get right back to our conversation with Judge Joe Brown. But first, Tracy also had a quick question for the judge. So we'll put them on together and Tracy can ask that question. We'll keep it quick. Tracy, what do you want to know about what our conversation has been and anything you want to know from the judge? Right. Well, um, regarding the mayor, I just wanted to know whether or not the mayor has a short term slash long term goal, because sometimes you have to get down to the level of these people's minds and see if you can come up with some type of a rational plan. And then if that doesn't work, what is your next step? That's all I needed to know. And maybe um, the judge, he may or may not talk, have talked to the mayor. I don't know. But um, if you all can just answer that for me, that'd be great. Sure. All right, judge, take it away. So you heard those two listener questions. What, what say, say you? you? Well, I put the mayor in the same group with the gangs because I don't like what's going on with city financing the hotel development downtown that major international hotel why are we paying for it i don't like what's going on out here with the fairgrounds with the scam that's going on about converting the liberty bowl to a soccer arena and building a new one when we need these potholes fixed and another other uh, things see i look at some school teachers and know they're ogs in the gang now you can tell the classrooms because they don't have discipline problems I look at some of the cops and I'm looking at some gang members who have on blue uniforms and badges. I see deputy jailers who are members of gangs. I see people that I know that everybody says, oh, they run the city and they're in city hall, but they're just as crooked as everybody else. And they've got scams running at the city expense that they're going to make a lot of money off of out here with the development of Blue Oval. By the way, Blue Oval is not Ford. Blue Oval is a South Korean electronics company that's already hiring several thousand people to send over here to get jobs that ought to be the reserved for the people that live in this area. Uh, all kinds of things going wrong. So it's not just the gangs. It is the entirety of what is happening around and about here and who gets a piece of the action when it comes to criminality. Big time, we've got $28 million missing from the clerk's accounts, and they're trying to blame the clerk, but then it leads up to the county city hall, and you've got a lot of stuff going wrong here. Wow. You've yeah. got 25 acres sold right behind the Peabody for just $600,000. You've got millions of dollars made off of some things that have happened where people 
have operated under the table just before this new ethics law hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's, it, there's just wrong a lot case. of corruption, and I think the point that you made very clear is these criminals know that the people that are claiming to be righteous and upright and lawful are also criminals, and that doesn't send a good message to those criminals, right? It green lights and rubber stamps with their behavior. I did want to ask you about the Trump v. Fannie Willis feud going down in Fulton oh. County. Georgia, you have been on this case so well, and I've appreciated your insights. Break down where we head as there's this back and forth over text messages between her lover, which is the special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, and the district attorney. Okay, first off, she's not on trial. She's a witness. And you saw one of the dumbest stunts I have ever seen in my 50 years of being in law, which is the district attorney of one of the major cities in America not understanding what the Fifth Amendment is about. Now, we have this back and forth over who's telling the truth. The reality, it doesn't make any difference. For example, did she have this affair with uh, Wade, uh, the special prosecutor, before he was hired or after? Mm -hmm. It was just an office romance. It doesn't make any difference. See, they're officers of the court. And both of them had an obligation to tell the judge on the front end, if it was developing on the front end, hey, we got a thing going on. Do you think we can be in this? It's up to you. Uh, or, in the alternative, she says it developed later. But guess what? She and he both had an obligation as officers of the court to advise the judge, hey, we just developed something, so it's bad. Then you get this thing with the cash, and you've got all kinds of problems. Uh, she took it out of her 401k, the financer campaign. When she pulls it out, it's subject to taxation. That apparently was not reported to IRS. That's a problem right there. You've got a situation where under the state rules, you have to report your campaign financing, $30,000 of that was never reported. You have all of these cash transactions that in the amounts and for the purposes that she attests to, they should have been reported to IRS. You already have a pending formal ethics complaint that has already been opened up into an investigation as it is. So you've got a real live mess. Is this money laundering? You've got a situation where a woman has talked about she's down and out financially. She doesn't have the money, but she's got $15,000 uh, around the house, and she had a lien on her property that was held up off of execution on by IRS on an attestation that she had a certain financial condition, which does not seem to be the case. What do we have here? You've got 600 and fifty to almost $700,000, depending upon how you look at it, that Wade has already received from the state of Georgia. And he got that because the district attorney, Fannie or Fannie Willis, okayed it. So you get three experienced lawyers in criminal law, and they haven't even come up with $150,000 of expenses between them, mostly for investigation. Now you get somebody that's never handled a case. He has submitted a bill at least 690000 And the totality of that bill 
whether it gets paid or not is up to Fannie. Judge, yeah. let me jump in here for sake of time, um, because there, there's no question, huge credibility issues. What do you think the Judge Scott McAfee does? He's expected to roll a couple days into this week. Is she thrown off the case? If you're a predicting man, what say you? Look, look. He, I've been a judge on the same level he's been. And I had a James Earl Ray case. And if I had anybody in my courtroom like that, they'd be off. And they'd also be answering after everything was over on a show cause why they should not be held in contempt. Now, it is clear that we have a mess. And we also have the same situation I talked about relative to Memphis. The DA obviously has scant experience in trying criminal cases. And what you're looking at is a bigger issue. When you see Fannie Willis, you are looking at Henley, the mayor. You're looking at Lori Lightfoot, the former mayor of Chicago. You're looking at what is going on in Shelby County with the young Democrats and the feminist takeover that they've had of that institution. Mm -hmm. You're looking at Stacey Abrams in Georgia. And for some reason, the Democratic Party is trying to cram Finny Willis is down everybody's throat is <laughs> somebody that ought to be running stuff. Well, Judge, it's a, it's, it's a Paris too. Well, I encourage all of our listeners to go check out your social media pages, and I would encourage them to start with X, formerly known as Twitter. You can follow Judge's commentary at Judge Joe Brown. He makes you laugh, but he also makes you think because he's the expert. Judge, thank you for spending some time with us on the morning show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. All right. Going to leave it there. Tomorrow, great, great show lined up for you. The folks over at TPUSA will be here at 730. They have an exciting event that's coming right to the University of Memphis. Also, Merle Purvis and Joey Solopek sitting down in a KWAM exclusive for one hour. That coming up on tomorrow's program starting at 8. We'll see you then.